0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here, all of those of you that are not on vacation this week. Um, I just wanted to start off uh, saying we had an awesome week of uh, VBS this week, and I had the opportunity of being a crew leader and seeing kind of the inner workings, seeing how uh, VBS happened from the inside. Uh, Last year, when we were here, I only was looking in from the outside, and this year I had the experience of being directly involved. It was awesome to see um, the kids getting excited about showing up every night, and actually, I've got to be honest, I was excited about showing up every night, which surprised me. I thought, surely I'm going to get exhausted, I'm going to be so tired by the end, I'm not going to want to come back, but every night... I wanted to come back and especially um, we got to see a reptile show at the, the last night so that was that was fantastic but um, I on Friday night was like hey where's my crew I, I miss my I miss my, my little crew buddies so um, just a great a great time thank you all of you for um, that, that volunteered for helping with that I also wanted to thank you for your prayers and your encouragement throughout Tim's sabbatical. It's really meant a lot to me and it's, it's, I felt that. It's impacted the way I've been able to, to serve here this summer. And I wanted to thank Derek and Chuck as well for their messages on Sunday, but even beyond that, for their support of me um, outside of Sunday worship where I've been able to bounce ideas off of them. I've been able to have breakfast, um, pray with them, and um, that has been that's been huge for me. So I wanted to publicly thank them for that. It is kind of crazy that we're already in week seven of our series entitled "All In," um, but we have been walking through the Book of Colossians and talking about what it means to pursue Christ above all. And last week, as Chuck uh, kind of introd this message, he said. Look, we are at a point where Paul is going to start moving us from theology and doctrine into practical living, into a way that's going to connect with us in a personal way and a practical way. So Paul has essentially set the table for us to start talking about um, where we're going to go, how we're going to live um, our lives out in reality. Um, so as we get started, though, I don't know if you were here a few weeks ago, but I talked about um, the opportunity I got to go to on uh, 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 the father-son backpacking trip. And we went over to Tuscarora State Forest, and we went to the Tuscarora uh, Trail. Now, what's interesting about that is uh, as soon as we got on the trail, it became very, very clear. Okay, we are on the trail that is marked with blue blazes now if you haven't ever backpacked before, if you haven't ever done any hiking or adventuring out in the wilderness you, know, you, you wouldn't know that the blazes are simply painted marks on the trees or rocks or on landmarks that show you that reassure you that you're on the right trail it's what, it's what's cued, or, uh, cued into your map and what's in all the guidebooks it says so if we want to stay on the Tuscarora Trail, if we want to be sure that we're on that trail, we have to know that we're looking for the blue blazes. And so as we started hiking, we kept on looking up, and look, looking beyond, looking out, up ahead of us. Yep, there's a blue blaze, okay, we're, we're still on the Tuscarora Trail, we're, we're still heading in the direction that we want to go. Now the issue would have been if we had found ourselves looking up at those blue blazes and seeing or looking up at those blazes and saying, oh, those aren't blue anymore, those are red. We'd be in trouble. We'd know that we're not on the trail that we thought we were on. We would need to retrace our steps and get back to the trail that we wanted to be on. Even worse, if we looked up and we didn't see any blazes, we would be in real trouble because we know we are just walking around in the wilderness. We have no idea where we are. Luckily for us on the father-son backpacking trip, we kept the blue blazes the whole time. Even when the trail got a little bit sketchy, even when the trail was a little bit hard to see, we could always look up at those blue blazes and find our way. So that's important. And we had a motivation as we were hiking. We wanted to get to the end. We wanted to get to, back to our vehicle so we could go home. That's important to have. It's important that we have a weighty, a weighty motivation. And it's also important that we have, that we have a, a pr- an approach or a process, a simple way to keep us on track. Because without a weighty motivation and reliable approach, we're likely to lose our way, we're likely to lose the trail. So we need that reliable approach, Okay, that looking up, that seeing the blue blazes, and we need We need that weighty motivation. We need the the idea that, hey, I actually want to get to the end of this trail. I actually want to stay on this trail and get to the end. So as followers of Christ, we should be motivated by the reality of eternal life. To set our minds on Jesus and pursue him above all. To keep looking up and stay on the trail so I believe that this morning, as we look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, it's going to speak to that motivation, and it's going to lay out for us a simple and sustainable approach for living the all-in life. And that's what we've been talking about all of these weeks leading up. Okay? As followers of Christ, we should be motivated to look up to that end this morning, we're going to see two guidelines, two guidelines for follow, to follow, to stay on the trail. Two reasons to follow those guidelines, and one incredible motivation. That's how our text is, is outlined today. This passage is going to move us from a focus on doctrine to a focus on practical living. In chapters 1 and 2, it's been about Christ, who He is, and what He's done. In chapter 3, it's about who we are and who we're becoming as a result of being found in Him. So let's open up our text. We're going to be in chapter 3 of Colossians, verses 1 through 4. that first verse. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Right off the bat, Paul is addressing a church that already believes. We've covered this before. Then they've already been justified and they're in right standing with God and nothing is going to change that. This passage, this letter, is about sanctification. It's about becoming more and more like Christ because that's the trail we're on. And that's the direction we're heading. It's important that we don't confuse justification with sanctification. Because when we get those mixed up, we could end up believing that our salvation is somehow dependent on our actions. That's not so. Don't read this text, don't look at this passage and say, oh, well, I guess my salvation is dependent on the way that I'm traveling. No, that's not the case. That's sanctification. That's us becoming more and more like Christ as we travel out our journey, as we travel out our position and our identity that's already placed in Christ. But with that in mind, let's look at the two, two guidelines to follow, two reasons to take those guidelines to heart, and that one extraordinary motivation. Look at verse 1 again. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts, set your desires. In other words, seek. Seek to find what's above and ahead. We don't seek things we already have, we don't seek the blue blazes if we're already at the end of the trail. The implication is that there's still more traveling to do. There's still more to find, still more to discover and experience. We know that we're not home yet. And this is why Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God, because we're not there yet. We know we're positionally in Christ, but we haven't practically arrived in heaven yet. This is why Paul tells us to set our hearts or seek out the things of heaven. Looking up and looking forward, looking letting our hearts and desires come in line with his and knowing one day we'll reach the end of our journey and be with him. So think about it. Where does most of your energy go to? Where does most of your brain space get occupied by? What's the passion What's your heart's desire? That's what you've set your mind on. That's what you're seeking. That's what, you're, that's what your life is about. So the first guideline is to seek and to find what's above and ahead. The second is set your minds on what's above and ahead. Let's look at that. Set your minds on this is verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Okay, so what's the difference? What's the difference between setting our hearts and setting our minds? Setting our minds on a course for the character we're becoming. It means, it means setting, our, setting our focus up, looking up, looking out to what's happening beyond just ourselves. Too often, we focus on right now. What's happening right here with us instead of seeking the heavenly things. Instead of setting our minds on what's above. On that heavenly vision. Okay, I have an uncle who's a pastor and he commonly refers to people that are constantly just absorbed with themselves. They're always looking down, always looking at what's happening immediately with them. He calls those people navel-gazers. And it looks like this. This is, this is how they go around life. They, they never look up. They never look to see what, what other people are doing. They never look up to see what God is doing. They never look up to see the blue blazes. They're constantly focused on, oh, this rock or that root or whatever obstacle might be in front of them, whatever's going on right down here at their feet. Now, we've got to do that. We've got to look down to see where we're stepping. But we can't stay there. We have to lift our heads. We have to lift our eyes and look up. And that's how we'll know we're staying on the trail. This is going to take effort. This isn't just a passive thing. This is, okay, I'm moving from my belly button and up. Okay? And this is going to guide and direct our steps as well. Okay, so the heaven, what heavenly realities are we not seeing because we're focused too much on what's right in front of us? What heavenly realities about Jesus are we not quite getting straight because we're not actually looking up? We're not setting our minds on him, we're not thinking about him. So, <laughs> this is funny, this is the sermon about my uncles. I've got another uncle, and he, uh, just a few years ago, made the decision he was going to lose a bunch of weight. Uh, he, had, he had gained a lot of weight over the first years of his marriage, and he decided, you know what, I'm going I'm to make a change because I actually want to be able to hike. I want to be able to climb up that mountain. I want to be able to do stuff when I'm, when I'm older. So, He completely changed his diet. He completely changed his exercise. Because his mind was set on it, he decided, okay, I'm definitely going to lose weight. That transitioned him into actually taking action and losing weight. And when his students, because he's a teacher, when his students would ask him, hey, why aren't you drinking that soda? Why aren't you having McDonald's after the game with us? He would look at, he would point to himself, you would say, hey, this doesn't just happen. Okay, because it was a radical transformation. And that was his way of communicating. Hey, I set my mind on this, and that's, and this is the result. But what are your thoughts about Jesus? What savior have you set your mind on? Here's some things people have thought about Jesus. He was just a good moral man, but not God. He was just a wise teacher who made profound statements. The problem with that kind of thinking is it's not really thinking. It's an avoidance of clear thinking. It's an avoidance of the logical, clear truth of who Jesus is. Because, see, if Jesus is simply a good moral teacher if he's simply a wise prophet who makes profound statements, we have to address the fact that he also said he was the son of God. So what, what simply good moral man or wise teacher, if that's all that he is, could also get away with claiming to be the son of God and not be considered a liar, or a crazy person. We have to address the reality that, hey, if if we're going to say Jesus is a good teacher, if we're going to say that he's a moral moral man, and that we're also going to say that, we're also going to believe that, yeah, he said he was the Son of Man, we have to ask, can a good teacher Lie knowingly? Can a wise prophet, a gifted teacher, knowingly deceive people? I don't think so. And Jesus may have been the most sane, true person the world has ever known. Our final option is that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. He's not simply some earthly prophet or gifted teacher. He's much higher than that. And we'll have to lift our eyes to see him. We'll have to lift our eyes from our navels to see the blue blazes that mark the trail, to see the reality of who Jesus is and to follow him. Let's Let's get back into our text here. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated At the right hand of God. Do you think of Jesus at the right hand of God? Do you consider him supreme in power and position? Only the Messiah can fit this bill. The Old Testament predicts this, and Jesus claims this in Mark 14, verses 60 to 62. Listen to this this passage. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. I am the Messiah. That was the claim that caused Jesus to be accused of blasphemy. This claim got him killed on the cross and was ultimately what fulfilled the prophecy about him. When we're, thin- when we're thinking about Christ sitting in throne, we've got to get that static artistic rendering or that comic book picture out of our minds. Jesus is not just in one place. He's not contained by the throne. No, he is everywhere moving about. People are coming to a saving faith all over the world. By his power. Yes, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he is not containable. Look at this. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. That's from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10. This is no hallmark sentimental fluff. This is practical boots on the ground, filling of the Holy Spirit and compelling us to look up, look beyond, and keep moving forward. So our two guidelines are simply stated, to seek and set our minds on the heavenly. But why should we as Christians bother with following them? I think Paul gives us the answer in verse 3. Let's read that. For you died... And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now we're gonna see two reasons to take those guidelines to heart. Because we're number one, dead, and number two, alive. Now that might seem strange, and it certainly reads strange if you take a second to slow down and read that that passage. Well, well, Paul is telling us, first of all, that we're dead. We're dead to sin. In other words, we can look at these earthly systems and earthly standards, um, look at all the pressures of the world and say, you're dead to me. Or in like a Bronx accent, you're dead to me. Okay? Look at all the systems that the world has created and look at them as dead. That's gone. They're flatlined, lifeless when the evil one tempts to lure us back to those old systems, those old practices, we can say, no, no, no. That's dead. I have a new partner. And he is Jesus and we are working together now. No longer do I ser- serve you. And look, beginning of verse 3, for you died By using such strong language, Paul's reminding us that we should have as much desire for the things of this world as a dead person does. Think about it. How much use are worldly treasures to someone that's dead? I mean, the the reality is that we don't often like to talk about this, but someday we're all going to die. We're going to get to that point. And when we do, we're not going to care one iota about what we've amassed in terms of earthly treasures. We're going to be concerned with the heavenly treasures that have come as a result of looking up, looking beyond, and following Jesus. Why not shift our focus right now to look up to what's going to last, to what's leading us to who we're eventually going to become because of who we are right now in Christ. All right, let's look at this, this phrase in verse 3. This is, this is really where all the action is. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Look at how close the word died is to life. How can Paul put those two things so close together? He says, hidden with Christ in God. Notice the double impact there. He's saying Look at with Christ in God, pointing out that communion, that that unmistakable interaction with Father and Son, Holy Spirit is implied as well. And then he uses the word hidden. And hidden has the sense of both protection and obscurity. As protection, we see. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter four, verses five through six. We see. God's protection as a hiding place. A hiding place in God for the people of Israel. Then the Lord will create over all Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain. God has historically protected in this way. The Israelites in the, in the wilderness with a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. The Israelites hundreds of centuries later as they return from exile from Babylon as told in the book of Nehemiah, protected, hidden from the threatening armies that's encircled so that they could rebuild the temple wall. The early Christian church protected, hidden, as she was guided from inception to spreading to the ends of the earth as recounted in Acts, and the prophecy of Isaiah points forward to today. Where the Lord dwells, there will be safety and power. Here in the church, right now, in our present day, the Spirit reigns. The Spirit dwells. Here in the hearts of each one of us who've been saved, He dwells and protects. We are hidden in Him but hidden also has the meaning of kind of referring to this relative obscurity that we experience as Christians that means we're not guaranteed fame and fortune we're not guaranteed a 5 minutes of fame for those living all in it means we won't be recognized by the world we'll be invisible to the world because we're, striving to make a name, because we're not striving to take, make a name for ourselves, we're not bending over backwards to ensure that we get what we believe we're entitled to as American citizens. We're not sacrificing morals for the sake of popularity and fitting in. And our citizen, citizenship is somewhere else. Unified, identified, seated with Christ. That's the trail we're on. And that leads us to the second reason to take the guidelines to heart. Not only are we dead, but we're alive. Alive to Christ. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. Back to verse 1. Since since then you have been raised with Christ. We are alive. Alive to Christ. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We're not just identified with Christ and buried with Him. We're raised up and made alive. Our words have been, our worlds and our hearts have been flipped over like the tables in the temple that Jesus flipped. The temple of our hearts has moved from being a place of sin to a place of honor and reverence and prayer. We have become that temple, that house of prayer. And Christ now sits enthroned and has become our life. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life. Christ, who is your life. What or who is driving your life? Now some might answer, well, soccer is my life. Food is my life. Academics is my life. My girlfriend is my life. Fitness is my life. It's interesting how we can somehow uh, justify some of these things too. Like maybe we'll go to the gym regularly and say, this is really for my health. When in reality, it's for our vanity. As Christians, there are different marks that point to what we've made our life. These are the eternal treasures in the heart of Christ that should mark our lives. Tenderness, kindness, loveliness, meekness, long-suffering, patience, wisdom, forgiveness, most of all, love. These are the bounties of heaven. These are the treasures found there. These are the things that begin to overflow from our hearts as we spend time with Him, These are the qualities that start getting worked into our hearts and overflow out from our hearts as we spend time with him. As we look up, as we look beyond, this is who we are, alive. Paul has essentially said, hey, quit playing around in the mud and get into the stuff of Jesus. He's saying instead of the classic, Act your age. He's saying, guys, act your identity. This is who we are. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased with what's going on right in front of us. We're far too easily pleased with accepting the invitations that the world gives us instead of accepting Christ's invitation to look up, to look beyond and stay on the trail. Let's not turn down a vacation at the beach for a mud puddle. Let's dial up our imaginations a notch. God gave us imaginations so we could imagine the heavenly, so we could dream and picture and dwell on the heavenly realities that we can't see, but that we want to strive to make a reality here on earth, that we want to strive to usher in This is who we are, and this is who we're called to be, alive. So we have two guidelines to follow. Seek and set our minds up and beyond. And two reasons to follow them, that we're dead and alive. And these reasons take us to one big-time motivation, one extraordinary motivation to keep on relentlessly pursuing Him, Our text says we're going to be seated with Christ. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is set in a position of power and righteousness. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Think of the title of this series. The subtitle is Pursuing Christ Above All. Look what happens when I add... A little, simple piece of punctuation. Pursuing Christ above all. Christ is the above all. He is the one seated at the right hand of the Father. And we saw this in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 of Colossians. For by him all things were created. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not some things, but all things. There's a gravity to Jesus that keeps things where they're supposed to be, even when it doesn't seem like that's the case. Even with the terror that ISIL is creating, even with the killings of people at nightclubs, even with the slaying of officers in cold blood, we can rest assured that Jesus is constant, that Jesus is set in that position of power, that he rules and reigns, and that we can look to him to stay on the trail. As we read the words of Scripture, we see that with the right hand, God saves the oppressed. God punishes the, punishes the enemies of the righteous. He helps people in all situations And because of his right hand, we know that at the end, all this fog is going to be lifted. And one day, we're going to see our God coming on the clouds, ushering in a new heaven and a new earth. It will be clear that the darkness has lost and the light has won, and Jesus has overcome the world. The right hand is also a symbol of righteousness. Righteousness. God's worthiness to be praised. All the earth that has been created by his power also rejoices in his power. Psalm 48, 9 through 10 says, We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As as is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Righteousness because by this mighty and righteous power of God, we've been made alive and raised to new life, that means we're there too. We're right there, right with God. And here it is. This is, this is something that you've got to hear. Please get this. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will, will appear with him in glory. The text has already said we're hidden. But this is is saying everything is going to be revealed. Even though hidden now, one day it will be clear, and even unbelievers will see. This is the point Paul is driving home for us. There's a time not known to us when Jesus will return. And as he arrives in full glory, everything will be made clear, and the world will suddenly see why we live the way we live why we made the decisions we we made, why we continue to follow the blue blazes instead of the red blazes. And they will see us for who we truly are. Look, in this time leading up to the Olympics, I think about that unknown Olympian who's been training in the shadows for countless hours, countless days, weeks on end. And suddenly, they get that moment where they take the stage. They step out on that Olympic platform. And in an instant, it's known. That's who they are. That's who they've been training to become. That's who they've been working towards becoming. It's who they've been but suddenly it's revealed. We will share in Christ's glory. Our Christian lives will be vindicated, proven to be right and reasonable and good. That's an incredible motivation to look up and live out our true identities right now, to be moving more and more towards our true character that we have already in Christ. So the direction that we're traveling, the trail we're walking on, the blaze we're setting our minds on, it's determining the character of the person that we're becoming. It's more than reaching a physical, heavenly destination. It's about becoming who we are, arriving at an identity destination. God's Word tells us that when we believe, we are adopted into the heavenly family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit along with all the saints, past, present, and future. From God, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 15. We're no longer strangers and aliens to the people of God, but members of the household of God, Ephesians 2, 19. We should be looking up, living up, living up to our sonship and daughtership, The desire of our heart should be, I want to be like my dad. To wish more than anything else in the world that we could be more like our father. That's setting our hearts and minds on him. It's who we are, and it's who we're becoming. See, that fancy little slogan, let go and let God, is only half the picture. That's the passive part. The active part is we've got to look up. We've got to keep moving forward. And we want to keep moving forward in the direction of our destination. There's action involved. There's this part we're responsible for, for living all in, pursuing Christ above all, going after Him with a mindedness and a heart that says, I want to be more like you, Dad. So what stirs your heart? What gets your heart and mind set on Jesus? What gets you fired up as you think about Christ? For me, one thing I know about myself is that when I'm on the trail, when I'm feeling the breeze on my skin, when I'm hearing the wind rustling the leaves, that's where I feel most connected to God. That, for me, is super important. And another place for me is just sitting and reading books. Reading books about God, not self-help books about me that use God as a system or an equation for bettering my life, but no, reading books about God that help me to see him more clearly and fall more and more and more in love with him. The classic disciplines are there, yes, but it helps us to know who we are and to know how God's wired us to be stirred in our hearts. We've got to keep reading the Word, yes. We've got to keep praying and meditating, yes. But not for the sake of relieving guilt, not for the sake of checking something off of our checklist, but because we actually want to know the heart of God, because we actually want to know Him more, we want to pursue Him further and set our minds on him and actually gain the mindedness of Christ. If we get this, we'll live by the compelling of the Spirit, the life of Jesus in us. And his concerns, his mindedness will become our mindedness. So just for a short second here, let's compare The Jesus mindedness to an earthly mindedness. Let's contrast these. These are some things that Jesus said paraphrased while he was walking his life of ministry out. While he walked this earth, he said things like, I don't come to condemn. Compare that to, I'll be the judge, I'll figure out my own way to salvation. I come to seek and to save versus I'm looking out for number one. That's me. I come to forgive versus, hey, I know forgiveness is good, but I'm never going to forgive that person for what they did to me. There's no way. I come to give living water. Mm -mm, I'm happy with the water I'm drinking right now. I'm happy with the life I'm living right now hey, it's my life. I come to eat with sinners and tax collectors versus I'm not going there. I'm not risking being associated with them. I come to wash the disciples' feet versus you serve me my way right away. That's the American way. When I think about that one, it's a little embarrassing how entitled we are. Listen to this one. I come to be humiliated so others could live. Versus I came to prop myself up, to make myself look better than everyone else, including Jesus. So we got to ask, are we advancing the concerns of Jesus or are we advancing something else? Are we demonstrating the mindedness of Christ? Minds and hearts turn to Him? Are we? Are we abounding in mercy and grace and love and concern about the well being of our neighbor and our community and our world? Are we living out what's pictured for us in the Gospels? In the life of Christ? Do our lives communicate, I want to be like my dad? Like the blue blazes, Jesus is our fixed point of reference. He doesn't change. He never lets us down. He never leads us in the wrong direction. The simple charge is to look up, look beyond, and live all in. Because of the reality of who we are and who we're becoming in him. So let's look up and live all in and stay on the trail that we're already on. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the exciting reality that you've shared your life with us, that you've allowed us away to be saved, but also to be made new, to be made more and more like you. As we walk this journey out, as we keep walking forward, Lord, yes, we rely fully and completely and totally on you for our salvation. But we want to partner with you as we walk out this life we want to look up to you. We want to walk out the way that you've set out before us, knowing that our ultimate destination, our ultimate destiny, is with you in heaven. We love you, Lord. We thank you for being that constant that never changes, for being our life. Lord, let that, let that be true of us today. Let that be true of us this week. Let that, let that be true of us until the day that we die and go to be with you. We love you, Lord, and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.